Before we go any further, please allow me to pray once more. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do love your word. We do cherish your word. Lord, we heard it twice this morning, and we want to hear it again tonight. We want to hear from you, and we know that when we open up the Bible, we know that we will hear from you. So we do pray that you will give us ears to hear your truth. Pray that you will give us hearts that are receptive to your truth and that will receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. Pray, Lord, that we be reminded of the difficulty that lies ahead of us in this world, but the glory that awaits us. And I pray you'll give us patience and faith in the meantime. And we do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. How easy should the Christian life be? How easy should the Christian life be? It's a loaded question. Have you ever thought that it would be easier if you were not a Christian? Has that thought ever crossed your head? You see life's difficulties and think, this might be easier if I had never come to Christ. Have you ever thought that? I'd be willing to bet that at least some point in our lives, each of us in this room has thought that very thought. And I believe we've thought that because we are living sometimes under a delusion of what the Christian life should be. And we think that way because we've created our own definition of how things should be going. This is what an army sergeant, secular army sergeant, told one of his soldiers. He said, son, if you're ever going to have to go to war, there's three things you're going to have to remember in battle. One, what tactics you're going to need to use. Two, how the fight is going, which is often very different from how it ought to be going. And three, the goal of the battle. And I think you see already the similarities to the Christian life embedded in that statement. God does give us clarity on this, and I trust you're going to see that clarity in tonight's passage in the book of Hebrews. So if you're not there, go and turn there to chapter 4. So tonight we're going to begin to conclude our discussion on why it matters that Jesus is better than Moses. We started that, and we proved the point that he's better, yes, but we're showing why it matters that Jesus is better than Moses. Last week we looked at chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. We saw a very simple structure, didn't we? We saw that the author of Hebrews introduced a quote to Psalm 95, then he quoted it, and then he explained it and applied it, didn't he? That's what we looked at last week. So he's doing a miniature sermon on Psalm 95, but is he done? Is that sermon over yet? It's not. He's got more to say on Psalm 95. He's going to tell us more. But what have we learned so far in the Psalm 95 and even before that? What have we learned in the book of Hebrews? We've learned the superiority of Christ over us, the superiority of Christ over everything. We saw he was a creator, he's eternal, he's a sustainer, and many, many more attributes of Christ that show his glory, that show he is truly God himself. We saw next the solidarity of Christ. So yes, he's superior to us, but he also identified with us. He became one of us, which qualified him for what job? High priest. Our great high priest. Not just any old high priest, but the great high priest. And then we moved on to see that he's a better mediator than the mediator of the Old Covenant. Who was that mediator? It was Moses. And we learned after that that just like the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt and they began the wilderness wanderings, we learned that last week we're on a pilgrimage too, aren't we? We're on a journey. We're strangers in a strange land. 
And that's our identity right now. We're on a journey to where? The new Jerusalem. And we learned last week, too, that this pilgrimage involves two things. It involves deliverance, yes. It involves deliverance, but it also is full of danger. While we're in the wilderness, we're in a dangerous place. What's some of that danger? Well, at first, things seem good. In the church, in the community, in the New Covenant community here in a local church, can you build some great friendships in the local church? Yeah. Some of those friendships become so good that you end up marrying each other. Great, great relationships. Uh, can you build a great support base at a local church? People who will give you practical help. People who will bring you meals if you need it. People who can change your tires. Whatever the case might be, does that happen in the local church? It definitely does. And it, and it happens here on a regular basis, and that's a great thing. It's an encouraging thing here. Can people in the church help you economically? Can they point you to training? Maybe help you get a good uh, career or things like that? Can all these things happen? Yes, yes, and yes to all these questions. The point I'm making is that there are practical benefits to following Christ and being a part of his people. The question we have before us tonight is what happens when the benefits are outweighed by the cost? When the benefits of following Christ are outweighed by the cost of following Christ. What happens to many professing Christians, people who say, yes, I'm a Christian. What happens when they realize that while they're in the wilderness, while they're in the new covenant community, what happens when they realize that it is full of danger? When they realize that following Christ will cost them. When they realize that they thought they were going to get all these benefits, but in the end it turned out costing them a great deal. It turned out to be very difficult. What happens whenever people face that? What happens in their soul? What is their response? What do they want to do with that? They want to quit. They want to give up. They want to stop. Don't you see that phenomenon in Scripture? And don't you see it in Christian experience? You see it all over the place. People will say, I'm done with this stuff. This is not nearly as easy as I thought it was going to be. That's exactly where the Hebrews were. Exactly where the people who were writing, reading this letter from the beginning, it's exactly the place that they were in. They were wanting to give up. They were wanting to go back to the mediator of the Old Covenant, back to Moses, back to what they thought was actually safety. How does the Holy Spirit address this problem is our question. How does it address this issue of wanting to go back? In this passage, he offers us rest. He offers us rest. This idea of entering rest is extremely important in both chapters 3 and 4. It's mentioned at least 10 times over and over again, this idea of entering into rest. And it's absolutely essential that we understand this. If we're going to understand what the Christian life is about and how it should be going or how it's going to be in actuality. This idea of rest. So here's the main point of chapter 4. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And here we want to consider the rest that Jesus offers us. This is a rest better than anything Moses could offer. And it's a rest better than anything Joshua could offer back in Old Testament history. Jesus offers us a superior rest. So let's read the text together. Chapter 4, start at verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. In this passage, we're going to look at three perspectives. Three perspectives on God's rest. And if we understand these perspectives, they're going to change the way we view the Christian life. There's a fundamental change in how we view the way the Christian life ought to be going or how the Christian life is going to be for us on a daily basis. Perspective number one, if the thing works here, and it doesn't. But you guys are very smart. Most of you have pens. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Samuel. (laughs) Oh, well. If you have pen and paper, great. Perspective number one, this is very easy stuff anyway. Fear falling short of God's rest. Fear falling short of God's rest. Perspective number one, and verses one through three. Who's going to enter the rest? There's a short, easy answer to that question, and that is not everyone. Not everyone's going to enter this rest. There are many people who will go to their graves rejecting Christ. Numerous men and women are going to die hating God and making fun of his promises, disregarding what he has promised, disregarding everything God has told us about eternal life. This is why verses 1 through 3 tell us this, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. And verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest. So God is giving us here no, that's not it. A warning. A warning against falling short. I didn't have anything detrimental in the PowerPoint, just a basic outline, so it'd be okay. There's a warning against falling short here. Falling short of the promise is a real danger. Falling short of God's promise is an actual reality for some people. It's a real danger. What's the proof? Why should we take this seriously? How do these verses prove that it's a real danger? It tells us this way. The sons of Israel, did they have good news preached to them? answer is yes. What was the good news preached to them? The promised land. You'll get to enter the promised land. You will get to go to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is what everything that they had been waiting for. This was the reason for all their complaints, that they had been uprooted from Egypt where they thought it was great for some reason, but then they were wandering in the wilderness, And they were ready for a place they could call home. And for them, this was good news that they could enter God's promised land, a place of rest. But what did they do with that good news? They didn't respond to that message with faith. And what was the result? They fell short of the promise. That first generation did not get to enter the land of Canaan. They were barred from it. They were forbidden from going in. 
Now you can see what this text does and how we respond to it. What is the effect that it should have on us? What should our response be to what happened to the Israelites? What is the word at the beginning of the verse? Fear. Let us fear. Because having a significant spiritual experience on our end, is that going to guarantee your salvation? Maybe something significant happens to you. Maybe a tragic event happens to you. Is that going to guarantee your salvation? Why do I need to bring that up? People base their salvation often on those kind of experiences, don't they? They have something great that happens to them or maybe something traumatic. Maybe they get in a car wreck. Whatever the case might be and say, wow, God delivered me from that. Therefore, I'm saved and I'm okay with him because he wouldn't have spared me if I wasn't, right? And they put all their hope and confidence in that spiritual or significant event. People do this. And when it came to a special encounter with God, did Israel have it? Oh, yeah. A very significant encounter with the living God as they were delivered from Egypt. Also, why should we fear? Because just hearing and just intellectually understanding the message of the gospel does not guarantee our salvation either. Say, yes, I've heard the gospel. I understand it. Does that guarantee that you will be saved? It does not guarantee it. Does it mean, or it means if you grow up in a Christian home, you grow up in going to church, is that going to guarantee your salvation? It's not. And there's people in the room who are in that situation where they're growing up in a Christian church. They're very young. They, they're too young even to hear what I'm saying right now. But eventually they have to come to realize that, no, their position right there in those chairs is not going to save them. Listening to, to sermons doesn't guarantee. None of it guarantees it. The word they heard did not profit them. It was no value to them, to those Israelites. And I would even argue that hearing the message and responding with unbelief became negative currency. It increased their debt. It compounded their guilt. They had the greatness of God's promise staring them right in the face, and they turned away from it, and they were guilty. Isn't this what happens whenever you share the gospel with someone? Maybe, you know, Darren and I, we're trying to do this more on campus. You talk about the gospel to someone. You explain, yes, the reality of sin. We've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the God. Yes, I agree with that. Yes, I agree. And... Oh, yes, I agree, sin should be punished. They agree with all these things. But then you get to the solution. You say, well, Christ died to pay for our sin. He is our substitute, and he is our only substitute. He's the only way you can be forgiven with God. And what do they do at that statement? That's when they back away and say, that's ridiculous. And they reject it. The message they heard was not united with faith. He's telling us to fear. But hasn't Christ conquered death? Hasn't he freed us from our slavery to the fear of death? We've already learned this in chapter 2. How can he tell us to be afraid now? Is this a contradiction? I want to say that this is not designed to make you question your faith. This is designed to show you that you have zero hope if you respond to the gospel without faith. If you respond to the gospel with unbelief, you have no hope. This is not to strike fear into the heart of someone who is trusting Christ but in the person who really doesn't care much about Christ or doesn't think much about his promises, a person who's considering walking away from Christ. This is who this verse is talking about. This is the person who should fear. It's to show that faith in Christ is your only hope. So the hope of receiving the promise. There is hope for receiving the promise. And how is the hope, how is the hope de uh, described here? Hearing plus faith. Hearing plus faith. There's an old preacher named Robert Murray McShane. He gave a great illustration of what's happening here. Listen, listen into what he said. He said, when food is taken into the stomach, the stomach mixes a particular acid with the food. 
by which the food is turned into nourishment for the body. In the same way, when the gospel is preached, those who are taught by the Spirit upon it mix it with faith, and because of that are able to taste that the Lord is gracious. So when you receive the gospel message, the only way to receive it is by faith. I'm going to take my jacket off. I was listening, this is not in the notes, but I was listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones this past week, and he said to all of his, uh, to, some, to some preaching students, he said, I'm going to tell you some advice right now that you're going to laugh at. He said, when you preach, you should all wear a robe, no matter what. So don't wear the hood or in decorations, but just a black hood to show how important the job is. So anyway, I'm taking my jacket off. Lloyd-Jones would definitely not be happy with me right now. So, but anyway, isn't this what makes the gospel good news? We don't have to earn the promise, do we? We don't have to work to get the promise. In fact, we couldn't get it no matter how hard we worked. We only take it by faith. We take it by faith and then we patiently wait for it. So when it comes to following Christ, what is it that most people fear? What's it that people fear the most about following Christ? People fear the costs of following Christ more than they fear the rejection of Christ. They fear, what's it going to cost me if I follow Christ? More than they think, what's it going to cost me if I don't follow Christ? But the cost of rejection is high, and there's much to miss out on. We have been warned. There's a strong warning, a harsh warning in this passage. But for God's people, if he's going to afflict us, he's also going to comfort us. When he injures us, he heals. And when he rebukes, he restores us. And when he warns us, he also gives us hope. This is the God we serve. So number two, perspective number two, know that God's rest is still available. God's rest is still available. You see that in verses 3 through 10. His rest continues. God's rest is not something that has stopped, but it continues on. Look down at verses 3 through 5 again. This can be a very difficult section, very difficult to think through, so I want you to follow very closely with me. It's worth to really look at the text and think hard about it. Verses 3 through 5, the second part of verse 3. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. So here's the question. When did God start his rest? When did he start it? It says his works were finished from the foundation of the world. What's he talking about? He's talking about the creation of the world. When he very first formed the world and everything in it. And this is why we see the quote from Genesis chapter 2, what we read earlier. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Next question. Did God stop resting after the seventh day? Did he get back to work on creating? Did it stop? He continued his rest, didn't he? Look back at verse 3 through 5. And notice the phrase from Psalm 95. It says, they shall not enter my rest. He quotes it in verse 3, doesn't he? And then he quotes Genesis 2 and verse 4. And then when he gets to verse 5, he quotes this thing again. They shall not enter my rest. Why does he keep repeating that same phrase over and over and over again? Why is he doing that? I believe it's because he's making a special point of saying that his rest continues. His rest did not stop after the seventh day. And why is that important? Because entering God's rest is still available. He's still resting. Therefore, we can also enter into his rest. 
it's still possible because his rest continues and he, because he himself is offering it to us. His call to enter continues in verses 6 through 8. Look at verse 6 through 8. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying, Through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you have hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. I think there are some people in here who watch sports. Is that true? If you ever watch sports, you know what a recap is, don't you? What's a recap? You see these throughout the games. You see these significant plays that happened earlier on in the game. They show them again because they really have a big impact on what's going to happen in the rest of the game. You say, wow, these things happened, so therefore these things need to happen. It's a recap. That's exactly what's happening in verse 6, a recap of what's happened so far. Because we've already established that those who reject the gospel fail to enter the rest. And that's the summary of verse 6. But what about those who do embrace the gospel by faith? What about them? Is there a rest that's still available to them? Or is it shut off to everyone now? No. Because God has established a new day to offer rest. And what day is that? And you have to follow this logic closely. What is that, what is that day? It is... Someone has to say it. I mean, if, you know, if you can't say it, it means you're not following along. What is that new day? Today. Today is that day when he offers us this rest. Because his rest is continues and it's something he can offer today. This past week, one of my little nephews, he asked, he said, is it yesterday? That just can't compute in our minds, can it? Because it's impossible to live in yesterday. It's an impossible thing. So it strikes us as funny. But today... Is that a relative term? Of course, today is a relative term. So whose today is it? Is it just their today or is it our today? What biblical writer said this? It's David in Psalm 95, isn't it? How long after Moses and Joshua's time did David write that psalm? He was king over Israel in the 900s B.C., Joshua and Moses, the, the wilderness wanderings and the conquest of Canaan, all that was in the 1400s B.C. So we're talking about hundreds of years later that David says what? What does he say? Today. I think I need to go all the way back over this. <laughs> he says today. Joshua did bring that second generation into the promised land. But was Joshua's rest final? Was it final? It wasn't. If Joshua had given them final rest through the conquest of, of, of Canaan, would David have talked about a rest available hundreds of years later? He wouldn't have even written that in Psalm 95. It would have been irrelevant. But there was still a rest available, so David could talk about it hundreds of years later and say, not then, not in the conquest of Canaan, but today. Today is the offer of rest. So the point of all this is that there is still a superior rest available for God's people, and God is calling us to enter it. Like we said last week, David could say it after Moses. The author of Hebrews could say it after David. And we can say it 2,000 years removed from the author of Hebrews, that today is the day to enter the rest. And think about this too. Whose rest is it? Is this Jimmy's rest? Is this Stephen's rest? Is Kyle's rest? Would that be very good? 
maybe good for a couple years, but we couldn't really offer that much, could we? But whose rest is this? This is God's rest. He said, this is my rest. And God himself is offering it to us. This is the best offer that you could ever be given. The best offer you could ever receive. God's rest. And he's inviting us to share in it. Now, it's a tough question we have to ask. Are we there yet? Are we there in this rest yet? Still under perspective number two, that the rest is still available. Our share in his rest is already, not yet. Our share in his rest is already, not yet. Verses 9 through 10. So what exactly is the rest? The Bible talks about several types of rest, doesn't it? The creation rest. We've already talked about that today. There's a weekly Sabbath rest. Happens every week, and that's instituted in the law of Moses. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Don't, don't do any work in it. There's also the Canaan rest, which we've already talked about as well. And in Joshua chapter 22, Joshua said that God had given them rest. There's also a rest of forgiveness that we have in Christ, that Jesus himself spoke about. He says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. There's a rest that we have in the forgiveness and the atonement of Christ, that he takes our burden of sin, and we lay it on him. He carries it. There's also a believer's future rest in glory. You don't have to turn there right now, but Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. So there is a rest that we enter into when we go into glory. That happens when we pass on as believers. And this is just like it says in verse 10. Look down at verse 10 again. Does the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from what? His works. And we're not just looking forward to an individual rest. We're also looking forward to a corporate rest when we're going to be gathered together with all of God's elect and we're going to worship at the throne of the Lamb forever and ever. We're looking at doing this together. There's lots of different rests spoken of in the Bible. Do they have anything to do with each other? What do they have to do with each other? How do they relate? Look at all those. Look back at what we just talked about. Do you see a drama in God's plan of redemption? Do you see a sense of anticipation in the Old to New Testament? Do you see how God is building this? How God is offering this rest? How he's established it from the beginning and how he's giving us signs throughout and offering an ultimate rest for us in Christ? Do you see how he's building the story? It says, so there remains now in the era of the new covenant a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is good news. These are all pointing to the hope of Christ's coming and his establishment of a lasting city, of a permanent rest. So it does look, make us look forward to the future, but does it have any bearing on how we live now? Does it have any bearing on how we go about our day now? Or does it have any bearing on, on the way we look at the world now, our soul? There is a present effect of peace now. We do have present peace. Our sins have been forgiven through the blood of Christ. We used to hate God. Now we're his friends. We used to want to run our own life, do things our own way, but now who are we submitting to? We're submitting to him. Our relationship with God has been fully restored through the work of Christ. The God of the universe is living where? Inside of us through his Holy Spirit. This is good news. This is present peace. 
This is the piece that is the, the effect of waiting for this rest. But it gets even better because the ultimate rest is eternal glory with our Lord Jesus Christ. There's not going to be any more crying. There's not going to be any more tears. There's not going to be a single disappointing thing that happens in this eternal rest. We're going to be thoroughly satisfied in this eternal rest. Why? Because we're going to perfectly glorify God. We're going to do perfectly that for which God has created us. And because of that, we're going to be fully, continually satisfied. No more disappointments. What about now? Is there crying? What about now? Is there tears? Or are there tears? Are there disappointments now? I talk to many people in the church, and many of us are disappointed. We are disappointed people because things are really bad around us. Things happen that do not, we didn't plan for. Things fall through that we didn't expect to happen. We are disappointed. And that's the reality. This is why we asked the question at the beginning, is the Christian life easy? Or how easy should it be? Because this world is full of disappointments. So this makes us beg the question of what do we do in the meantime? We are waiting for this rest. We are experiencing part of it now. We're at the entrance of it, but we're not there yet. What do we do in the meantime? What do we do with all of our disappointments? What do we do with all our hardships? What do we do with all of our tribulations? What do we do? It's perspective number three. Be diligent to enter the rest. Be diligent to enter the rest in verse 11. Look there. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. We are in the wilderness right now. We're still there. What are we promised while we're living in the wilderness? What does the Bible promise us? It promises us tribulation, doesn't it? It promises us hardships. It promises us suffering. It promises us difficulties. John 16, Jesus himself told his disciples, in the world you're going to have what? Tribulation. Acts 14, through many happy times we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many great days we're going to enter the kingdom of God. What does it say? No. It says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. These are guarantees. These are promises to us. These should be expectations for us that we're going to face these difficulties while we're here in the wilderness, the dangers of the wilderness. What's the call of Hebrews at the end of the letter? It says, right now we're called to suffer where? Outside the camp, bearing the reproach of Christ. That's our call right now, suffering outside the gate. There's doctrinal controversies that are not going away anytime soon. There's going to be illnesses that are staying with us till the day we die. This week we learned our children are going to have seizures unexplainably. Our relationships are going to break. People who we thought were the closest to us end up leaving us. This is difficult. This is hard. This is a promise, though. This is how it is living in the wilderness. The author of Hebrews wants us to see ourselves at the very threshold of the rest. Just like Moses was. Turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 33, verses 1 through 4. There's so much going on in terms of pointing us back to Israel's history, pointing us back to the wilderness wanderings. And this is where the author of Hebrews wants us to be as we're thinking about what we do in the wilderness, as we're on the threshold, as we're on the entrance 
of the rest. Deuteronomy 33, verse 1. What about Moses? Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. The Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain, and the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. So you have Moses' perspective here at the entrance of the land, seeing everything, God showing him all these things. He's looking right into it. He's looking into the rest. Verse 4, what did the Lord say to him? This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Our rest is not complete. We are in the wilderness. We are looking into the land of promise, as it were. We are at the entrance. We're at the doorway. We're at the threshold. We are entering it, but we are not completely there yet. Is it possible for someone in this room, someone sitting in this room, to fall short of this promise? Is that a possibility? The scary thing is that there will be people in this room who will fall short of this promise. It will happen. And what's the cause? What's the cause of falling short? Points us back to, again, what the Israelites did. It says, so that no one will fall through following the same example of what? Disobedience. Why is the word disobedience here? He's been talking about faith, unbelief, faith, unbelief so much. But now he says disobedience. Why does he bring up that term now? He's saying it because unbelief is disobedience to God. It's actually the height of disobedience to God. What's going on when, in your heart when you're not trusting God and his promises? What's actually happening in your heart? Are there three levels? You can say, well, okay, well, I'm trusting God. The next person can say, well, I'm not trusting God today, which isn't that bad. And the next person could say, well, I don't believe God. Are there three levels? Is there a middle ground where it's not so bad? There's no such thing as a middle ground in that case. It's all disobedience. If you're not trusting God, you are disobeying God. And you're falling short of the promise. There's no middle ground. Faith is the only solution. So we have to have a diligent spirit. What does it mean to be diligent? It tells us to be diligent. What does it mean? It means to make every effort. It means what it looks like. It means make every effort. Take pains. Be zealous. Be eager in this whole matter. It's the same word that Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Be diligent in your job as a minister. Be diligent with God's word. And in this context, it's exactly the opposite of what the Israelites were doing. When you look at the Israelites' example, doesn't it seem like they were doing everything within their ability to disobey God, everything that they had in their being to not trust God and his promises? Author Peepers is telling us, don't follow that example. Have faith. But he's telling us to be diligent. Is this a contradiction? Is now he's saying, okay, well, I told you you have to just believe. Now I'm saying you have to work to do it. Is that a contradiction? What's happening here? Can we earn the rest by our works? Does it mean we have to earn our way to get to heaven? If we were to tonight look at Paul, James, and Hebrews all together, I believe we'd see a very full picture of what biblical faith actually is. Look at all those letters together. Paul, what does he emphasize? He emphasizes justification by faith alone. You're declared righteous in God's sight, not by any works you have done, 
but solely on the basis of faith, trusting in Christ and his work. That's the emphasis Paul has. How does James emphasize faith? Saying, this is an active faith. This is not a faith that just sits by, but it's a faith that gets to work. After you've been justified, it's going to make a difference. It's a living faith. It's a faith that works. What's Hebrews' emphasis? I think there's something very important going on with what Hebrews is emphasizing about faith. And that is, it's a persevering faith. It's a faith that doesn't stop. Yes, it's a faith that justifies. Yes, it's a faith that does get to work. But it's a faith that keeps on going. It doesn't do a bunch of great stuff halfway. But it keeps on going to the very end. Keeps trusting Christ to the very end. A persevering faith. And only a persevering faith is going to be a genuine faith. So this call to diligence is a call to continually have a single-minded, focused faith on our only source of hope, Jesus Christ, our high priest. How do you know if you're being diligent? How do you know if you're having a diligent spirit? How do you know if this is happening in your life? I'm not going to give it away completely, but I believe this is the question that chapter 11, the Hall of Faith, answers. A couple of questions you could ask yourself is, how much do you love the world? How much do you really love the, the, thing, the world and the things in it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the most of pride of life? How much do you love it? How much do you love stuff that's in the world? Do you love that more than Christ? And next question we could ask is, do you really believe God's promises? Could you really leave everything you know like Abraham did and go to a strange land just because God told you? Could you really go and sacrifice your son just because God told you? Could you do these things that the people in the Hall of Faith did? Are you believing, trusting in God's promises? This is the tension of the Christian life. We keep returning to this parallel between Israel's wilderness experience and our wilderness experience. Are there limits to the parallel? Are there limits to it? I'll show you what I mean. I'd say the most important limit to that parallel is justification. Justification happens how many times in a person's life? Once. Once God justifies someone, that's, hap that's a one-time work where it says, you are justified. That cannot be repeated over and over again. It's a one-time work. It's a permanent work, and it's something you cannot lose. But what we have studied so far in this, it has two effects. It should have two effects on us. One is going to show that who is true and who is false in the church. It's going by bringing up all these things, about being diligent, by having faith. It's going to show who is false in the church because they're all far, all far, are false professors in the body of Christ. What about for people who are truly believers? It's going to motivate us. It's going to motivate us to persevere. These warnings don't just sit idly in our hearts, but they make us, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to get to putting my faith in Christ today. I'm going to not put my trust in myself, but I'm going to put it in Christ. It motivates us. But how does it motivate us? You get through a passage like this, chapters 3 through 4. It's a passage, like we said last week, that emphasizes our responsibility. And any time, no matter what passage you're at, if you're in the passage of the Bible that emphasizes your responsibility, you're in trouble. You don't have any hope within yourself to obey it. When you finish a passage like this, you say, what do I do? I do not feel very restful right now. After I finished studying this passage, I felt a lot of unrest. That because I, I feel like I'm falling short. I feel like I'm not measuring up. I don't feel restful at all. So what do we do with a passage like this that emphasizes your responsibilities? He's telling you, yes, you be diligent. You put your faith and trust in Christ. You do these things. How do you do it? 
How can you have the strength to do it? The Bible wants us at the end of ourself. The Holy Spirit wants us at the end of ourself, a place where we're not putting any trust in ourselves, not one ounce of trust in ourselves or in our achievements or in our efforts or in our, our great personality. Christ has finished the work, and we don't access his work by adding more work to it. We access his work by faith alone. So how easy should the Christian life be? It's an impossible thing, isn't it? Only through Christ can we live a life that's pleasing to God. And the good news is, we can. This week, we can live a life that's pleasing to God. We can enjoy God's rest. We can have the hope of the future. And we can bear our tribulations through Christ because he is offering us rest today. St. Augustine has a famous quote where he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. And that's the story of all of us. Let me have a word of prayer, and then Mike will come up and have a time to pray for Andrew. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, uh, this passage. Thank you for bringing us to the end of ourselves, and hopefully that's where we all are. Hopefully we're, that none of us are in a place where we're trusting in ourselves, but only in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what you want us to do in this world, to bear our tribulations, to put our faith in you. Lord, I pray that we would find rest in you this week, that we'd not put it off any longer, but that we would do it today, and that we'd find true rest in you and have true hope for the future.